When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's the B-Ball Breakdown with Coach Nick on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. Coming to you live from the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Coach Nick. Hey, sports fans. It is Coach Nick here. And as what the guy said in the intro, this is the B-Ball Breakdown. And as always, I'm here on Tuesday, every Tuesday at 5 p.m., Pacific or 8 p.m. Eastern, depending on where you are. I know the games are going on right now, and it's already an exciting score where the, let's see, the Raptors are up 10 to 4 against the Cavs. So we'll get to there. So hang out with me for a little while, and then we'll all be able to watch the, you know, second half of the game, and I'll be tweeting and all sorts of crazy stuff. And if you don't know me, I'm Coach Nick. I run a thing called B-Ball Breakdown where we take videos and explain what's going on on the court from a coach's perspective. Uh, this week I have a great video today on Jason Tatum's game and why I think that he might end up being the best rookie of his class. So let, you know, Ben Simmons have the rookie of the year and let Jason Tatum have, uh, maybe the better career. Another video I did was why the Jazz can't beat the Rockets with Rudy Gobert. It's a real problem because of the way they like to play defense uh, up against very specifically the Houston Rockets attack. So it's a real interesting problem for them. And I'm not so sure how they're going to adjust. But I do think that Quinn Snyder could have something up his sleeve that will help them. But without Ricky Rubio, this is not going much longer than five games, I think. And even with Ricky, it might not go that much longer. But we have a great show coming up for you tonight. Uh, three great guests. Our first one's going to be Brian Toporek, who is a senior writer for B-Ball Breakdown and contributor to Bleacher Report. We're going to discuss from the Sixers' point of view what's going on in the court from them. Then we're going to bring on Dan Clayton, who's an associate editor of the Salt City Hoops and also a writer for B-Ball Breakdown. Go figure. And he's going to break down the Utah Jazz side and what's going on there. And then best friend of the breakdown, Jared Weiss, is going to come on and break a little bit down of the Celtics side and the Rocket side of things. So we're going to go through uh, that half of the bracket and uh, stay tuned with us uh, sports fans because we have a lot of great stuff coming up. It'll be very entertaining, very informative as always. And um, as always, I'm Coach Nick. Follow me at B-Ball Breakdown and we'll be right back after these messages. It's the B-Ball Breakdown with Coach Nick on SB Nation Radio. Coming to you live from the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Coach Nick. Hey, sports fans. It is Coach Nick here. And I'm here with a, uh, another segment to bring you. We're going to 
have a great discussion about the Sixers and their point of view, what's going on in this series. Uh, we are in the midst of a Raptors-Cavaliers battle, and the uh, Raptors, by the way, look like they were ready to put to, uh, to rest some of the mental issues they have uh, over the uh, underneath the Cavs or whatever that is considered. Um, the Cavs are battling back. They're using the three-pointer to keep them close, but I don't know. I don't have a good feeling at all about uh, the Cavaliers in this series at all. Uh, so we'll have to find out how that happens in the second half when you join me uh, over on Twitter after the show. But meanwhile, I'm going to bring on Brian Toporek, who is a senior writer for B-Ball Breakdown and contributor to Bleacher Report. And he's going to come on to discuss what happened to Sixers in Game 1 of the series against the Celtics. Brian, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Coach. As always, uh, let's, it's always great to talk to you and get into the nitty-gritty of what's happening. Uh, and you always have a finger on the pulse of what's going on with the Sixers themselves. So, you know, what happened in that game one? Was it just simply uh, they were rusty after a long rest? Well, nothing good happened, I'll say that much. But, uh, I mean, you know, they, they could definitely blame rest for part of it. I think, you know, that there was concern over that turning into rust, and I think that was partially an issue, but also, I mean, they just weren't locked in locked in on either end of the court. They shot 5 of 26 from 3 on offense, and defensively is my bigger concern. I mean, I think the shooting will regress to the mean at some point in the series, but they were just letting, I mean, Terry Rozier, Jason Tatum, Al Horford were picking them apart. Robert Covington looked completely lost on defense a couple times, which you don't really see from him all that often. Even Joel Embiid, there were a couple of possessions, especially in the second half when they were trying to get that comeback going, where you know Al Horford would catch the ball out of the perimeter, and Embiid didn't even bother trying to close out on him. And Horford drilled a shot in his face, as he wanted to do. So I think it was probably a long film session today for Brett Brown. I can't imagine he was very happy with uh, how they played on either end of the court last night, but hopefully they'll get some things fixed up ahead of game two. Yeah, I, I hear you. And on the uh, on the defensive side, like you said, I actually caught uh, Covington a couple times on, on the video on Twitter. Uh, you know, completely losing the ball, getting beat badly on a cut, and like the ball whizzing by his head. And you don't normally see that. So yeah, it it was weird. I guess we could just kind of chalk it up to nerves. You know, none of those guys except for JJ Redick had ever really been into the second round of the playoffs. Plus, they probably never been in the first round of the playoffs. So uh, <laughs> so it's understandable. Uh, they were also on the road, which you know always has an effect. But you mentioned progressions in the mean. The three-point shooting for the Sixers was at 19% on 26 attempts, 5 for 26. Meanwhile, the Celtics were uh, were definitely feeling it at 48.6%. So you really feel like um, the Celtics, you know, that we're, we're due for Game 2 to see a, a lower uh, normalization of that. And does that, does that indicate the Sixers are going to win Game 2? I mean, I, I certainly hope so. I, I wouldn't expect Aaron Baines to hit two threes again after he hit three throughout the entire regular season. But the Sixers also got a couple of performances in the round one where Justice Winslow hit four threes in the first half. So it, it just seems like they get these outliers a lot so far in the playoffs. But I mean, I would think the Celtics. I don't, you know, I don't think Baines hits two of three from three. I don't think Terry Rozier hits seven of nine. Hopefully. Mm-hmm. Um, Marcus Smart's two from eight seems more along the lines of what I would expect from him. But, you know, the Sixers, they've been somewhat cold throughout the playoffs in terms of their shooting. The, their second half in game one and game three against Miami really kind of covered it up because when it rained, it poured in those two games. But otherwise, in game two, they shot seven of 36. Game four, they were seven of 31. In game five, they were seven of 28. 
So they, I mean, they've shot 25% or lower from three point range in now four of their six playoff games. I think, you know, some of it is missing wide open shots and rushing shots and just not being in rhythm. But also Miami and Boston, to their credit, have been very physical. And a lot of the shots that the Sixers tend to get are off of these dribble handoffs where J.J. Redick tries to sneak behind the screen or Marco Bellinelli does the same. And the, the Heat and the Celtics have been very good about sticking with their guy, fighting through the screens, really not letting them get comfortable. So, you know, I, I wouldn't expect the Sixers to shoot less than 20% from three again, but I also wouldn't expect another eruption like the 64.3% to shot against Miami in game one. Uh, that all sounds reasonable to me, and I feel like the other concern is, uh, you know, it's funny because Redick went two for seven from three-point range but ended up getting 20 points, which I'm sure they'd be ecstatic with with that kind of production from him. Um, what about his matchup on the other side? Because it seems concerning that he is getting stuck on guys like Jason Tatum, who I don't think he'd ever, ever hope to really defend. How is that matchup working up in, on the defensive end for the Sixers? I mean, that was my biggest question from game one was I understand the theory behind it, you know, putting Ben Simmons on Marcus Smart so he can kind of be play free safety. But, you know, especially with Jalen Brown out, that seemed like the perfect opportunity to just stick Robert Covington on Jason Tatum. Covington's the best wing defender on the team. Tatum's really one of the only three Celtics you're afraid of offensively, along with Horford and Roger. So if you, you know, lock him up, then, yeah, you can live with Marcus Smart taking 10 or 15 shots a game. That's that's in your favor. So I'm looking at the NBA.com matchup data, and Covington only had 15 possessions on Tatum. Redick had 23. Bellinelli had 18, which is just not ideal at all. I mean, Bellinelli got worked on both ends of the court in Game 1, so I would assume that's probably the first place where Brett Brown goes back and you know, when he's reviewing tape, he probably figures, okay, we we can't go back to that well again. But mm-hmm. when, J- you know, we don't know what Jalen Brown's status is for game two, but when he returns, it's going to throw another wrench into it because I don't know where you hide Redick at that point. I mean, I guess on Terry Rozier, but that's also not an advantageous matchup. So much like the Sixers have been forcing these matchup issues all year with Ben Simmons being a 6'10 point guard, you know, the Celtics having so many versatile wings like this, it also poses a problem for the Sixers, and it's going to be really interesting to see how Brett Brown responds in Game 2. I agree, and I think that that's the real issue. The, the, the fear for Sixers fans is that they, they won handily uh, without Jalen Brown, and I feel like all year long what was unfair about the Celtics was when they would play Jalen Brown at the two-guard, and it made it very difficult for other teams to match up well on that at all, especially when they also have Tatum alongside, and they had those guys healthy for much of the year. So th- this is an interesting thing where the Sixers were kind of, you know, the favorites almost, and everyone's really excited about their prospects. And, and I don't know, man, this, this isn't as much of a, I guess, a coaching matchup as it is for the players. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a complete chess match, and, you know, Brad Stevens deserves all the credit that he's gotten. And, you know, Brown, I thought, did really well in that Miami series, switching Ilyasova, you know, in the second half of Game Five, putting him in the or Game One, putting him in the starting lineup, really opened that up, and he was quick to be proactive uh, against Miami. So it was surprising, you know, Tatum really went off. I think he had 16 points in the first half last night. It was surprising to see him not make an adjustment. Reddick still started on Tatum in the second half, so we'll see what happens in Game Two. But I would be surprised and mortified if we see more Reddick 
starting the game on Tatum. <laughs> Who is the key for the Sixers in Game 2? And obviously we're going to say that this is a, probably a do-or-die game for them. I would hate to see them go down to love and, and hope to try and win this series. So this is probably you know a really must-win game for them. What's going to be the key, do you think? Yeah, so I think uh, defensively they need to stay locked in. I mean, Embiid really, I think, you know, he has 31 points and 13 rebounds and five assists, which sounds on paper like an incredible game. But he said afterwards that he played, I'm going to use the PG word and say he played crappy. Uh, so I think, you know, <laughs> getting better effort out of him defensively will be huge. Ben Simmons had seven turnovers. It just, he didn't have control of the game like he did against Miami. And it seemed like in game two against Miami, he got a little flustered. It seemed like he was a little flustered last night. So maybe now that he's had it, you know, he's seen what the Celtics are going to throw at him. He can adjust accordingly, but those two guys are the head of the snake for the Sixers. I mean, aside from that, you know, hopefully you get a little bit more out of Dario Saric. He shot 0-4 from three-point range. His above-the-key threes have been really crucial for the Sixers this year, and that's kind of helped, you know, this super-sized starting lineup. The fact he's actually turned into a somewhat reliable three-point shooter was really the reason he could stay on the floor. So hopefully you get a little bit more out of him. Covington, you know, was 06 overall, 04 from three. Hope You're not going to bank on 20 points from him, but hopefully a little bit better than that. But, yeah, I mean, it's really, I think it comes down to Embiid and Simmons. For sure. Well, Brian, thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, laying down your knowledge. It was great. You can follow him at btoporek on Twitter. And stay tuned, sports fans, because we're going to be right back with another great segment on the NBA playoffs. And this is the B-Ball Breakdown. It's the B-Ball Breakdown with Coach Nick on SB Nation Radio. Coming to you live from the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Coach Nick. Hey, sports fans, I'm back. As always, I am Coach Nick. This is a Tuesday night, which means we have our show every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. So, we have a series here between the Rockets and the Jazz. Didn't go out so well for the Jazz to start in Game 1. And I did a video on that to show what was going on. And we had some real issues with the way they defend with Rudy Gobert as a system, which is really a problem because they had built a really great defense off of that. And now they're struggling to uh, stop you know, what arguably is one of the greatest offenses of all time uh, based on offensive rating and all sorts of things. So uh, I could think of no one better to bring on the show than Dan Clayton. Associate editor of Salt City Hoops and also a writer for B-Ball Breakdown, go figure, to help us decipher what it means that the Jazz struggled so mightily against the Rockets in their opening game in the second round. So, Dan, thanks for coming on the show tonight. Hey, thanks for having me, Nick. I'm uh, really glad to have you here, have you back in, in some in some perspectives. Um, let's talk about this because clearly the Rudy Gobert thing was, should be a strength for the Jazz defense, yet... It didn't seem that way, at least to my eyes, and I'm wondering what your thoughts were on on the video and just the thoughts of, of Rudy Gobert in general uh, in that game one. Yeah, so, I, you know, I saw your video, um, which was making its way around Jazz Twitter, as you yeah. might imagine, uh, with varying levels of concern um, about the content and, and disagreement with the content. Um, yeah, look, I mean, the, the examples that you showed there, like, it's clear that those were moments that the Jazz defense were not working. I think where I diverge a little bit is, to me, I don't, those moments didn't look like failures of the system. It looked like failures to execute the system. Okay. Um, the Jazz have some very specific things that they want to do 
to um, engage Rudy Gobert on defense and, and similar things, similar but slightly different things that they want to do with Derek Favors. But for those things to work, the, the guards, the perimeter defenders really have to, um, you know, do certain things to give them a chance and, and not put them in uncomfortable situations. And, um, you know, that's where I saw a lot of breakdowns on Sunday. For sure. And here's the only other problem, because obviously the guards could do a lot better job of keeping the penetration out of the middle, which then forces Gobert to step up, and then it's a lob. The problem, though, is that you have probably the best player in the NBA getting into the lane. Uh, and I, without even like, I don't even know. Actually, let me ask you this. Do you have in your mind's eye images of when, when Ricky Rubio is healthy playing? Can he do a job to keep a guy like James Harden out of the lane? And has he done that in the well, past? I can't even think about it right now. Yeah, no, I, he is really good at that. Um, but the, but here's the thing: so is Royce O'Neal usually. So mm-hmm. is um, you know to a degree Donovan Mitchell is good. I, I think the biggest breakdown I saw on Sunday was that guards were not getting through screens. And you know we have to give credit here. Clint Capella is one heck of a screen setter. I mean that guy is good at setting vicious screens that that free up Harden and Chris Ball. And you know guys like. Joe Ingles, Donovan Mitchell, Dante Exum off the bench. Those are guys that usually can squeeze through those tight spaces and, and fight their way through screens or at least, you know, get through it and recover quickly enough so that Gobert and Favors can release back to their men. Um, that wasn't happening as much on Sunday. So, I, you know, I do think that Rudy didn't look quite like his usual self. I, I don't think he had the impact that he usually has. He, he um, you know, got caught a little flat-footed a couple times. Um, one time, P.J. Tucker had it in the corner. Um, Gobert kind of looked like he closed out correctly, meaning, you know, he challenged the shot but didn't really, like, lunge into him. And then P.J. just ran right around, just jogged around him and laid it up and in, which is something that doesn't usually happen around Rudy. So he needs to play better, but the perimeter guys also need to, you know, definitely take more pride at the point of attack and make sure that they're fighting through those Clint Capella screens. Now, do we know uh, any other information as of this time about uh, Ricky Rubio and whether he's going to try and play? Yeah, Ricky has, has been pretty much ruled out of Game 2. Um, in fact, the initial reports from ESPN's Adrian Wojnarowski were that he would be out for a minimum of 10 days. Um, Quinn Snyder yesterday when he spoke to the media was, was a little more cagey than that. He, he kind of made it sound like definitely not Game 2, and then, and then they'd check on him after that and see how he might be you know, physically reacting before the, the series shifts back to Salt Lake City. So I don't want to fully rule him out of games three and four yet, but, but I would say definitely don't expect him tomorrow night in Houston. Yeah, that's rough. It's hard to take a starter out of, a, of any team in the second round of the playoffs and hope to continue what you were doing as well as you had. Um, what is the key? Who do you think, what player out there is a real X factor for game two to keep them in the series? Yeah, f- frankly, I, you know, I think, it's, I think it's all those guys I mentioned. I mean, keeping in mind that Chris Paul and James Harden are two really tough covers, and they're two guys that you can't really necessarily take anything away from. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Chris Paul, like the Jazz's system is really designed to take away, the, take away the rim and take away the three-point line and force guys into mid-range. Well, guess what? This series features one of the best mid-range shooters in NBA history in Chris Paul. I mean, that guy is just ridiculously he's money when he gets into that mid-range so you know one of the core things that the jazz try to do is is something that you know might not be available to them as as much as it was in the okc series where they were flat out you know telling russell westbrook go ahead have those 15 footers 
And, you know, he made some. He certainly made some in games one and five, and that's why the Thunder won those games. But, you know, the Jazz will play the percentages on those shots, and I don't know that they can play the percentages quite the same on Chris Paul shots. But if you ask me for, you know, one player, I, I would say Donovan Mitchell needs to be a little bit better. Um, he's having a phenomenal postseason. He's had seven, uh, seven games in the postseason, seven straight postseason games with 20 points or more. The first player to do that in, in like 30, uh, no, since 1972, the first rookie to do that since 1972. So, um, sorry, I get all my Donovan Mitchell scoring stats confused. But uh, So, wait, so Michael didn't do that, huh, as a rookie? No, no. Wow. Okay. Now, I mean, there are other things that, that uh, <laughs> you know, accomplishments where Mitchell has matched Michael or matched Magic or things like that. There, you know, he's having a really special co- scoring postseason. Um, I think relative to his game one performance, he needs to be a little bit better at fighting through some of those situations, getting back in front of his man. And then the decision-making could certainly be better because while he did have 21 points in game one, uh, it came on 22 shots. He needs to be a little bit more efficient. You know, I'm just kind of glancing at the box score real quick, and I'm just realizing that because uh, the game got kind of out of hand early. Um, yep. But, but the Jazz actually outscored the Rockets in the second half by 11 points, right? Like if I'm reading that correctly. that Yeah, they clawed away. Yeah, Um, and particularly the bench guys were really big in in bringing the Jazz back a little bit. But then, you know, it's hard to know how much stock to put in that because, you know, did... did Houston still have the pedal of the metal, so to speak, when they were when they had such a big lead? Was some of that kind of just guys? Uh, you know, I'm going to use an old Jerry Sloan phrase here. Was that just guys jackpotting around because they knew they had a, a healthy lead? Um, I think that the Jazz are happier with how they defended in the second half than they were in the first half. But you know, certainly they've they've got to get Rudy Gobert back to being some semblance of his usual self, or they're not going to have much of a chance in this series. For sure, for sure. I mean, we, we can't see those drives by Harden uh, where he's going to lay it up right over him or around him. Uh, I mean, I think you might have to deal or, or just you know know that they're going to get two or three lobs probably just by the course of their offense running normally. But I think that's the one that was really like a little striking. when He, he got at least one or two of those, I think, where he just, boom, went right to the basket, laid it up, and Rudy just couldn't really affect those. Um, and even if he doesn't block it, affect it to where they miss. And I guess that's the other key here is you've got to get someone like Favors back there who's going to be able to clean up once Rudy has to go help and, and it can't get the rebound. Well, that's exactly it. That, I mean, that's where the Jazz alter some things and, and switch their defenses around. Um, more, more than at the point of the screen, they, they do some different things behind the screen in terms of who comes, and help, who comes to help and, and um, you know, things like that. But by and large, you know, They've won 48 games and a round of the playoffs and 33 of their last 42 by defending basically the same way. I mean, you know, they'll do some situational adjusting, but basically what they do is on screen rolls involving Rudy Gobert, they have Rudy drop back. On screen rolls involving Derek Favors, they have him play up at the level of the pick but no higher. And that's, that's basically what you're going to see from the Utah Jazz. Um, What's tough is that when the guard doesn't get through and recover to his man quickly, when you have Rudy Gobert drop back like that, is Harden and Chris Paul can sense that, and they can take Rudy on the move before the guard is back, and then Rudy kind of has to switch. He has to pick up Harden and Chris Paul, and that's not what the Jazz want. They'll do some situational switching, but they don't really like their odds as much with Rudy having to go out in space and guard Harden and Chris Paul, and 
they had, or, or favors, frankly, even though favors is a little bit better of a switcher. They, they don't want either of those situations happening as often as they happen on Sunday afternoon. Fair enough. And by the way, just, just to defend myself in my video uh, to the Jazz fans, I did show a couple of those possessions where Rudy was trapped on an island and actually caused misses or they missed or for whatever reason they missed. So that wasn't all terrible either, but uh, we shall see. Uh, as we wrap up, what's, uh, what's your prediction? Do you have any kind of sense of what this series is going to play out or how it's going to play out? Oh, oh, I think we're going to see, <laughs> you know, I think we'll see, broadly speaking, more of the same, meaning, you know, Houston's a dang good basketball team. Um, they've got two of the best off-the-bounce playmakers in the history of the game, or at least the modern history of the game. Um, they've got Clint, Clint Capella, who's super underrated as a, as a screener, a rim runner. Um, he runs the floor well, like your video showed. Um, and they've got a bunch of role players who, who know what their role is and know how they can contribute. I think the Jazz are going to have their hands full. I do think that they'll make some of these games more competitive, but I, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily think, you know, look, the Jazz are playing with house money right now. In mid-January, this team was 19 and 28. They were nine games under 500. So, um, you know, if they can, I think, make Houston feel them a little bit in this series, then I, I think they have to consider that a success and, and a learning and something that they can hopefully build on in future seasons. Well, fantastic. Thanks, uh, Dan, for coming on the show. And don't go anywhere, sports fans. We will be right back after these messages from the B-Ball Breakdown. It's the B-Ball Breakdown with Coach Nick on SB Nation Radio. Coming to you live from the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Coach Nick. Hey, sports fans. It is Coach Nick, as you just heard. This is the B-Ball Breakdown. I'm here every Tuesday with you on SB Nation Radio and across whatever radio stations you might be uh, out there listening to. So, hey, give me a shout-out on Twitter if you're on the radio listening to this. I'd love to hear what markets you're in and where and what part of the country and all that stuff. So hit me up at B-Ball Breakdown on Twitter. Uh, it's also a fun follow just because I'll do a lot of uh, live in-game analysis. In fact, I uh, am watching, I have one eye on the uh, Cavaliers-Raptors game right now. It's all Raptors, 40-28 in the second quarter. I can't wait to get over to there for the second half. So join me over on Twitter when the show is over, but not until then. And we have another very special guest to bring on the show right now. That is uh, Jared Weiss, who is the uh, best friend of the breakdown, Celtics writer for The Athletic, and a brother of mine under the CLNS Media family. And he's here to discuss the Rockets side of things and also his bread and butter, the Celtics, and what they did to dominate game one. So, Jared, glad to have you on the show. I can't believe I've been promoted to very special guest status. This is very exciting. No, this on my resume. Best friend of the breakdown. That's, that's your official status. Okay, I, I'll, I'm a, I'll I gotta make I gotta t-shirts go that say "Friend of the now. Breakdown" on them. That's what I want. I'm gonna get "Friend of the Breakdown," "Best Friend of the Breakdown." Make t-shirts and we'll hand them out. All right, I can't wait. <laughs> so, well, I can't wait. Uh, let's talk about the Rockets uh, for a little bit because let's get you out of your comfort zone. Um, any uh, any feelings of what's going on right now? We just had a nice talk with Dan Clayton about the the Jazz side of things and what they need to do. But uh, you know, what what are your thoughts on the on the Rockets and and their march toward you know uh, a title this year? Well, don't worry. I don't have a comfort zone, so it's going to be fun for me. Um, <laughs> I mean, the, the 
like the first game was just dominated by Harden pretty early, so it's really hard to draw the conclusions of how it's gonna, you know, how the adjustment should work throughout the series. But the the thing I really like about watching Houston is they they're really good at kind of inverting their sets, and there's a bunch of teams that do it, but none can really do it the way that them and uh, Golden State can. And just watching the way that they get creative and trying to get Harden the ball, where like we, we see him so often with those amazing isolation plays. I mean, the way that he can blow by, you know, bigs or guys that match up well against him when uh, he puts them on an island is incredible. But I love how Houston doesn't fall back and rely on that the way that some other teams do, where he's willing and they're willing to put him in all sorts of complex actions. And, you know, we were just talking about 21 Pistol earlier this week, and they have this one really interesting variation of it where instead of going straight into a, a dribble handoff in the corner, they actually will first give the ball to Clint Capella over the middle and then bring Harden around for a DHO. Capella just dies as hard as possible, so he drives Gobert under the rim, and Harden basically gets a free drive to the hoop. And, you know, the, the idea that you can be the best offense in the league, have the MVP of the league, and still figure out ways to get him free drives to the hoop against one of the best defenses in the game, you know, that's the stuff that if you're a basketball junkie, you just look for it. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, Pistol is definitely something we cover quite a bit on over on my YouTube channel. And as far as any kind of version of uh, handoff into ball screen or pin down into handoff. In fact, I think that what you're describing is what I saw the Celtics doing for Tatum, if I'm not mistaken. But I, uh, That's I, right. I've been watching a ton of footage. I can't figure out who I've seen that with. But, yes, it's almost an inverted pistol where, yes, you're now diving to the middle or you're, you're getting a, a, a catch on the run from a handoff. Very hard to stop. And uh, certainly, you know, if Gobert gets caught in any, any that kind of action uh, with, with Harden, that's going to be a layup or it's going to be a lob. And I, I, just, I just don't know if they um, – and, by the way, this is for every team in the league. I don't know if you can stop that. But, by the way, maybe you, maybe you concede that, right? Maybe the Rockets are going to get their three or four lobs in a game and you do your best to stop everything else uh and, and hope for the best there um uh, but what about how about cp3 are, are you feeling like he's doing exactly what he's supposed to be doing as far as taking some pressure off of Harden and giving him some some extra rest and some extra possessions off yeah i mean they have they have the perfect balance going there where i mean Harden, you know it seems like cp3 is like the change up to Harden's fastball which is ironic since i feel like Harden is basically just a change up the entire time but uh it's I think they do a good job of just splitting it where CP3 just kind of taking over and running shot by itself, but they play off each other nicely. Uh, I think as we get deeper into the playoffs, assuming they continue to go deeper into the playoffs, we're going to see them go, you know, go to ball screen actions off of each other more frequently. Uh, but they, you know, obviously give them and give D'Antoni credit for the way that they just, they really worked that out throughout the season. But it seems that the longer that Paul has gotten, or further what Paul's gotten from that injury back in, was it February when he returned? Uh, he, I think he just seems to be getting progressively better and better. And like, obviously he's an insanely incredible shot maker. Uh, and I, they, I don't think they've maximized the way that those two can play off each other yet, but they certainly seem to have maximized the way that really those two guys individually can work with uh, Clint Capella and and Capella is just been such a nightmare for everybody. So it's like no matter what happens with the relationship of Harden and Paul, whether they can maximize their effectiveness, so that they can kind of run ball smooth off of each other constantly throughout the game, they're almost always going to be able to do something effective with Capella, like the play we were just talking about, where Capella's threat diving to the rim is kind of what makes the whole thing work. 
So it's it seems like he, I don't think Houston's offense is really going to get challenged until the next round, even though Utah's defense has been amazing all year. What we shall see. I kind of hope it does. I, I, I would like to do a follow-up video that shows, hey, look, this is what Gobert was doing in the first game. It wasn't working. And now look at how much energy he's got, and they're stopping the middle penetration. It would be nice for that to happen. But you know what I really want to see? I want to see a, a, like a, a one of those panels where they bring a lot of CP3's Clipper teammates into a room and sit next to all of his <laughs> Rockets teammates. And I want them to interact and describe what it was like playing with them because I have a feeling that it's probably completely and diametrically opposite each other <laughs> based on what you see on the court uh, this year. It looks like CP3 is like is almost dare I say having fun. I, well, be careful. Don't say CP3 having fun. I don't think he's supposed to be able to have that. But yeah, if you took the Clippers the first year that he was there, that I guess his first full year that he was there compared to last year, I mean that that just it would be diametrically opposite just right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that the whole Clippers thing I think was poisoned from many different angles. But if anybody questioned how good CP3 was, I'm pretty sure watching with this Rockets team should you know put to bed the notion that he's anything less than one of the greatest point guards ever. I, I mean, I agree. I held him up as the gold standard for point guard play for all these years. And by the way, but there's a lot of cracks in that armor uh, over the last several years. I started to see issues with him, you know, uh, losing his mind and, and doing stupid stuff out of anger <laughs> that would really, you know, put them in perilous positions to to lose games uh, and, and that kind of thing. And so it was like, geez, maybe maybe this guy, you know, pun- the nut punching stuff, although did I see that recently? I feel like that comes up every year. There's something happens where he does something a little bit dirty, right? And uh, and it's just troubling. Uh, you'd like to think that your yeah, your point guard's under control all the time, uh, but yeah, I, don't, there's... I don't think it could be a I don't think it could be a great guard in this league without doing something dirty at some point. It seems like that happens to all the great luminaries of our era. Oh, now that's interesting. Um, okay, any other examples of any other guards that you feel have uh, you know gotten gone the dark oh, side? Oh God, well. I mean, I, you know, I grew up a Celtics fan, and I'll never forget the rage that they felt when I watched uh, Dwayne Wade body slam Rajon Rondo and snap his arm in half. So yep, there that, you go. that one, yeah. I mean, and actually, I think I just I just started covering the team at that point, so I was I was trying to be fairly objective about it. But I mean, that one was shocking, especially because Dwayne Wade was one of my favorite players growing up. So that was a rude awakening. I mean, Manu has done some stuff over the year, and Manu is probably my favorite player ever. Um, I mean, I cover Marcus Smart, and uh, he, uh, he's, uh, yeah. it's funny, for all the nut punches he's given out in his career, he's taken a bunch of them in the last couple of weeks, so I guess yeah. karma's coming back around. Yeah, him. I caught one on, on video on Twitter. Well, and by the way, I, I, as I'm realizing, we only have a few minutes left, and we haven't even broken the, the Celtics uh, conversation, so let's quickly, speed rounds. Celtics, um, Terry Rozier, is this something that's sustainable? Is he a legit starter in the league now? No, uh, there's no question. That was already decided months ago. Everyone's just catching up to it now. Okay, I've, now, now you made me feel bad because I'm just not <laughs> catching up to it. <laughs> I thought we talked about this like a few months ago. Yeah, he. I mean, I said coming to the season, I talked to him, uh, the people that work with him over the summer. They said his off-season program was insane and that his footwork and his uh, shooting touch had just grown just exponentially over the off-season. We saw, we saw a few peaks of it earlier in the year. He was just having trouble really finding a rhythm. And then when Kyrie got hurt for that first time, in January, Rozier had the most insane week of his career that first week, and he just hasn't stopped since then. I mean, he's been playing at not only just like starter in the league, but like good starter level in the league. He's basically a 20-point scorer now, which is shocking. He's only in his second season of like full consistent play right now. So he's, he's certainly on pace to be a you know, 20-plus point scorer consistently for his career. 
Wow. Okay. I mean, I, I kind of feel that way. I'm still inching my toe into that water, but there's no question. And I was high on him even in the last year. I saw enough glimpses where I'm like, this guy could be something. And then also with the Brad Stevens effect, uh, without question, he's been developing. Uh, and so maybe you have to get me in touch with his guys. I want to find out what they did to get him this way because, man, it's going to be a problem with uh, you know when, when um, Kyrie comes back. I mean, or I don't know if it's going to be a problem, but. Uh, what's what is going to happen? Kyrie obviously is going to start, and I guess is this Rozier going to accept a, a role off the bench? That's the tricky part. Is I mean, Rozier has made waves about the fact that he wants to be a starter in the league, um, and you know there was some concern. I think uh, maybe a year or two ago, when Marcus Smart was clearly in their plans, Isaiah was really ascending, and he wasn't really sure if he would have a future in Boston. Things have really worked out for him. Um, he's really, really close with Kyrie, so. I don't think that there's going to be some sort of issue there between them that's really going to get in the way. But, I mean, he's hitting free agency in uh, not this offseason, but the next offseason. And that's an offseason where there should be tons of cash space available, where teams may be willing to go very, very high on giving him an offer sheet that the Celtics might not be willing to match because of the larger tax implications. Mm -hmm. So they may have to be looking ahead to whether or not even if they wanted to keep him, whether they could feasibly keep him, when they have to consider that the next year Jalen Brown's extension would ha- or extension or RFA or whatever it would be, and then Tatum down the road. The thing is, with this team, we've learned is that no matter how well they're playing, the team the next year could only have four guys returning. So that's what happened <laughs> right. this year. And who knows? I mean, they have very high aspirations for the talent they want to acquire. They've already got some amazing talent on board. And the, the fact of the matter is, Rozier has made himself. Uh, Rozier has turned into one of the most intriguing trade assets in the league now. Uh, yeah, but then again, taking consideration Kyrie's uh, injury history, and that could very, I, I guarantee you, Danny has had that discussion. Danny Ainge probably said, hmm, like maybe we keep, uh, you know, Rozier for a lot less money, or whatever, and we see if we can move Kyrie. That, that's had to have come up, right? There is nothing more Danny Ainge than to make a historically significant trade for Kyrie Irving and then trade him again because they want to stick with Terry Rozier. That would be well, the most Danny Ainge thing in the world. Oh, well, we'll save that I, that whole conversation for the next time we discuss this because uh, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show and breaking this up down. Fantastic stuff on the Rockets and the Celtics, and we'll have to see what happens. But uh, thanks for coming on the show. Next time I don't want to talk so much, we'll actually break the games down. <laughs> no, that was great. That was Jared Weiss. Make sure you find him over on the Twitters and uh, everything else uh, that he writes uh, for The Athletic. So, Jared, we'll talk to you later. And everybody else out there on, uh, on the radio listening or streaming, don't go anywhere. We've got one more segment for you on the B-Ball Breakdown. It's the B-Ball Breakdown with Coach Nick on SB Nation Radio. Coming to you live from the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Coach Nick. Well, there you have it, sports fans. Another show in the books. I believe this is episode 11 uh, that we've done for you on SB Nation Radio every Tuesday night at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. As always, I am Coach Nick, and I do uh, really great videos breaking down what's going on on the court uh, over on the YouTube channel, B-Ball Breakdown. And plus, if you follow me on Twitter, we do live analysis during the games. And so I'm going to be heading over. It's almost halftime right now of the Raptors and the um, uh, Cavaliers game, and it's actually pretty close. It's a six-point lead right now. Uh, it looked as if the Raptors were going to blow it out, and I was kind of glancing during the commercial breaks at what was going on. So, you know, the uh, the three ball is a real uh, is a real balancing act there when you can make a few of those and get yourself back in the game. So we'll have to find how that goes, and stay tuned. Uh, we're on Twitter when I break that stuff down. But a great show. 
We had some fantastic guests, as always. Brian Toporik gave us his insights into the Sixers and what they need to do to get back in the series. Um, and I would imagine they'll have more energy and they'll play a little bit better. And then, you know, the Celtics won't shoot as well, so we'll have a little bit of a better game. Dan Clayton came on as the associate editor of the Salt City Hoops, and he uh, broke down what was happening with the jazz side of things. Uh, and I don't know. I think we both feel like, you know, this is all, like he said, it's house money. They're going to, they, you know, they kind of got, got out of the first round. It's a successful season based on everything else that was going on. And uh, they'll use this as a good uh, base for what's going to happen in the future and as they get better. Uh, Jared Weiss came on for a nice segment uh, as, the, as the, the Celtics resident expert and also did some great analysis of what the Rockets are going to do. I think everyone here agrees that the Rockets are going to win that series. Uh, and the Celtics are in a pretty good spot here. Uh, we'll have to find out if they can continue to sort of run what they're doing and have Stevens be the X factor for them off the bench or on the bench uh, doing all the puppet strings. So stay tuned for a lot of stuff. We, by the way, we've been releasing uh, at least one video a day. I think we've pretty much gotten that rhythm right now over on YouTube, and it's been killing. People have just been loving all the content because we don't normally do sort of game breakdowns. We don't normally do them every day like this. So uh, you definitely got to check that and subscribe and, and get yourself uh, the notifications turned on so you're ready to go right first thing as soon as I drop that video and you can watch it. It's always better to watch my videos in the first like hour after they drop. I don't know. I'm just telling you it's better that way. Besides, no one will spoil it for you like they might spoil uh, the Avengers movie. Uh, I won't do that for you either, but um, I will tell you, I've never been in the movie theater where every single person is screaming angrily at the screen. So take with that what you wish. Uh, but again, every Tuesday, I'm going to be here with you guys to break down all of the NBA and certainly all the playoffs. And so lots of things to go over. Matchups are really important. So when you're watching these games, keep your eye on the pick and rolls. Who is defending the pick and roll? Because that's the one thing the offense can control is who's going to come up and screen the ball. Who does that team want to get involved? Who's the weak link in the defense? Those are all important things to be watching for. And the game within the game I found really interesting. So don't forget to look at that. And then you can blame me next week when you come back saying, Coach, I can't watch these games like a normal person anymore. <laughs> That's the point. That's what I'm here for. That's what I'm here for every week. So thanks for coming on the show. Or thanks you for joining us and listening live. And uh, I hope you're enjoying this as a podcast soon next day. And we'll be right back here next week, uh, next Tuesday, as we are every Tuesday, on the B-Ball Breakdown. <laughs>